Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're coming at you with new listener mail. It's uh, it's our listener mail roundup, our first of the new year. Yeah, yeah, the year's starting to get away from us here. Wait a minute, did I just lie? I think maybe we did do one at, like, the very beginning of January. Yeah, but we probably recorded that one in the previous year. That's true. This is the first recording of 2019. Okay, I'm sorry. Now, I I have to say this. We always have assistance from our mailbot, Carney. Mm-hmm. Say hi, Carney. And uh, t- today we're having to just tiptoe around a couple of topics because... Um, Walking is, on robot eggshells. Exactly, because there is a, there's a certain holiday coming up this week, uh, which we shall not name, that uh, Carney has become very sensitive about and is, uh, is prone to, uh, to bouts of rage if it is even mentioned. Now, it may have to do with a certain recent breakup with a certain office machine that, say, makes uh, copies of pieces of paper. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I think that's exactly what happened. Um, so he's a little touchy. Um, we're going to try and uh, avoid using the uh, the L word and certainly the V word. Um, <laughs> but I don't th- I don't I don't think it's going to get in the way. But let's just be very cautious as we proceed through these various bits of listener mail. 
All right, Carney's over, bringing one over right now. Let's uh, let's take a look at it. Okay, now this first one is I, I'm not going to read the whole message. It's just part of a genre of listener responses that Robert and I have gotten to uh, back in the was it in the summer or last fall we did a couple of episodes about the age of the Earth. Yes, because uh, listeners were asking about this, like how we actually know that the Earth is about four and a half billion years old, and so we talked about that. And at one point in the episode, we discussed how. Multiple scientists we were reading had used an expression I think was thousands of millions Mm -hmm. or something. And we were like, well, just why not billions? And multiple listeners got in touch with us to give us a very good answer to this question to say the reason some scientists avoid using the word billion is because billion means different things in different languages. Now, isn't that confusing where different languages have different like words for orders of magnitude that are used to mean a different order of magnitude in another language? That's horrible. (laughs) Not confusing at all. So I think, for example, in uh, like in French and in Dutch, like a billion actually means in English a trillion. So just to avoid confusion, the uh, the, the term they would use sometimes would be – they'd either like use scientific notation in the number of years, which is one reason scientific notation with like the 10 to the power of something is very useful. But then also they could just say thousands of millions. So cleared that right up. All right, here's another one. This one comes to us uh, from CJ. CJ writes, Hi, guys. I've been listening for years, but I haven't had anything interesting to comment on until I re-listened to the episode on biophilia. I've been working with horses for almost my entire life, about two decades. Now it's my job to train dressage horses. Oh, boy. One of the things I've noticed is horses are indeed terrified of anything that is shaped like a snake, even remotely. Uh, Here in part of Michigan, we only have very tiny snakes, so the horses really don't spook at real snakes. But objects on the ground like lead ropes, pitchfork handles, electrical cords, large branches, pieces of plastic, rustling leaves, their own shadow, and hoses especially scare them to death. (laughs) The young horses are the worst with this, but all of them are susceptible to snake meltdowns. Leaping, snorting, bucking, stomping, etc. is common. This earns them an annoyed glare and stern knock it off from me. It's so common that it really has zero effect on my fight or flight instinct anymore. Usually I can feel it in my hands way before they actually spook. Well, anyway, thought you might get a kick out of the prominent example of biophilia that horses exhibit. Horses are also scared of puddles. They look like black holes to them because they have very little depth perception or dark objects close to the ground, which I think resemble a crouching predator. I enjoy every episode that comes out and it makes my long commute much better. Keep it up. Ah, first-hand account of biophobia. Now, I know – I can't remember if in that biophilia episode we talked about the idea of like uh, like uh, sneaking up behind a cat with a cucumber in your hand. Did we, we? We may have. I know we've – I know I've brought that up on the show before. Uh, but uh, yeah, I loved this, uh, this account here uh, in, in part because my wife – well, uh, is was a horse person. Oh yeah, and uh, and her aunt uh, still has horses, and we go out and visit uh, uh, visit them in Arizona um, every so often. So I'm exposed to a lot of people t- telling me about horses, and uh, horses do come up a bit in our, our research as well. I mean, when mm-hmm. you when you consider the. Uh, the, the history of, uh, of humanity. Uh, the horse plays a, a vital role. I mean, depending on who is doing the analysis, sometimes an essential role. Absolutely. So thank you very much, CJ. Uh, I mean, and then on top of that, uh, they are animals. We often kind of take that for granted, those of us who oh, don't yeah. actually work with horses, to realize that this is this is a, um, like a, a, a sort of a herd-based uh, prey animal. 
that we have um, domesticated uh, f- for our use, but mm-hmm. it is still a large creature. It is still a creature with a lot of, of hardwired responses to the natural world. Well, on that note, it looks like there is another animal-based uh, listener mail coming in here. Oh, yeah. So remember in our episode about thought experiments, we were talking about Isaac Newton using the uh, you know Cannonball Mountain to illustrate the idea of orbital mechanics, why things would Mm -hmm. orbit in space. And so Isaac Newton, you'll recall we discussed, had an enemy, the royal astronomer John Flamsteed, who Newton just mercilessly harassed. And there's this diary entry that we discussed in the episode where Flamsteed was complaining that Newton was coming at him with, quote, knavish talk and calling him, quote, puppy, etc. And we wondered what that meant. Well, our listener Dolly got in touch to let us know. Dolly wrote, I got to haul out my old friend's slang and its analogs by Farmer and Henley, published in 1890. And here's the entry for puppy. And this is puppy, pup, or puppy dog, uh, colloquial, a vain or unmannerly fool, a fop, (laughs) a coxcomb, hence puppyish, conceit or affection, puppyish or puppily, impertinent, puppy-headed, stupid. (laughs) Yeah, I, I love I love it when we can we can find a, a bit of uh, derogatory slang that has gone extinct. Yeah, and kind of uh, pull up the fossil and look at it again and try to imagine uh, daily interactions in which this was the vile thing to say. <laughs> That somebody would like – they'd like write in their diary about it. Like this really – he called me puppy. I can't believe it. Yeah, or some, yeah, someone drops uh, a puppy during a conversation. Everyone's like, whoa, whoa, cool down there, buddy. No need to get mean about all of this. All right. Well, uh, we have a couple of listener mails here uh, regarding demon eaters and possessed tools. Oh, yeah. Our this, Lunar New Year episode. Yeah, yeah. just came out the other week. This is probably the, one of the most recent episodes we'll be uh, uh, dealing with in this listener mail. Uh, the first one comes from Brandon. Brandon writes in and says, hey, Robert and Joe, just finished listening to Demon Eaters and Possessed Tools episode. Great topic. I loved it. For whatever reason, the Possessed Tool portion uh, or one of your thoughts about why they developed a personality or traits reminded me of a great short story by Arthur C. Clarke called Dial F for Frankenstein. (laughs) In summary, the story is set in 1975, so pre-interwebs. At 0130, all of the phones in the world start to ring. People pick up to hear strange inhuman noises. The following day, all the crazy happens. Everything is shutting down. Planes crashing. Electrical grid is erratic. Missiles are launched. Then the protagonists figure out the world's phone system has become so large and complex it is now sentient. Wait, this is the plot to Terminator, (laughs) but like more than 10 years before Terminator, or around 10 years before. Uh, He continues, it makes me think that over Over a lifetime of handling uh, duty and maybe different owners or at least users uh, would change the personality of these possessed tools. Like if you used a knife strictly for cutting bread versus strictly for cutting meat. Uh, Any woozle, love the show, (laughs) B. Well – yeah, thank you, Brandon. Yeah. Uh, I, I've never read that story. That is Terminator, right? Like that you you connect enough machines together and they become too smart and become sentient. Essentially, yeah, I think that's the the basic concept. I will say I do I do love it anytime someone either 
writes in uh, via listener mail or shares with us on the Stuff to Blow Your Mind uh, Facebook group, the discussion module, uh, some bit of uh, of old sci-fi or recent mm-hmm. sci-fi that ties into a topic we've covered. Yeah. Uh, it's always a joy because it's usually something I've, I've never heard of or I've heard of, but I don't really know about the, you know, the details of the plot. You know, I can certainly see how, obviously, it sounds like this story is meant to be a little bit funny, but uh, I can certainly see how in the 70s, before people had really tried this level of networking, you could wonder, like, well, what would prevent, you know, just massive networking of machines from somehow getting some kind of emergent intelligent property that we couldn't predict from the beginning? Basically, all you need to start with is the idea that no individual neuron is sentient or conscious, but you network enough of them together in the right configuration and somehow the mind emerges. Yeah. But then again, we don't know in, that no individual neuron is conscious. Maybe it is. Maybe consciousness is additive. You just, like, concatenate enough of it inside the same skull. All right, this next one comes to us from Clarissa. Clarissa says, I really enjoyed the latest podcast on demon hunts and other Lunar New Year themes. One of my favorite things about all the podcasts from How Stuff Works is, the, is that while it's clearly a U.S.-based network, you cover topics from around the world. I love learning about other cultures. I've heard a few podcasts, can't remember exactly which ones, but they were definitely from HSW, uh, that have reminded me of a favorite YA book. The Demon Hunter story brought it to mind again, and I thought you two might really enjoy the book. It's a very quick read and plays with a lot of fun concepts about reality. It's called The Homeward Bounders by Diana Wynne-Jones. She writes a lot of really good early YA stories, the most well-known being Howl's Moving Castle. Oh, oh. yes. This, is, this would be uh, the, the, the book that uh, Miyazaki based his movie, Howl's Moving Castle, on. Yeah. Yeah, I like that movie. Yeah, I've never, I've never read the original material, but I, I, I absolutely adore that film. I didn't know there was original material. I guess I thought it was just a movie. Anyway, uh, uh, Clarissa continues. But I would recommend Homeward Bounders and The Game. Homeward Bounders is about a kid whose entire world is being secretly run by people playing intricate RPG table games. <laughs> the game is about Roman gods as kids in modern time and plays with themes that run through myth worldwide. Both are really clever illustrations of unique ways to imagine the world. I know Robert has a son who may be old enough to enjoy the books. I'd guess they're about the same level as the first couple of Harry Potter novels. Thank you for the show. Oh, well, thanks for the recommendation. Yeah, indeed, my son is, uh, my, my wife is currently reading my son um, the Harry Potter novels indeed oh really so they're on I think they're about ready to start the fourth one I read him The Hobbit we started on the Lord of the Rings and we kind of uh, uh, petered out for the time being because uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of not much happening at the beginning what, of that book. What was the story he asked about the Hobbit? Like you'd been reading it a while, and he said, "Like when does the story start?" Or no, no, something? no. We, the Hobbit was all gold. It was it was Lord of the Rings oh, we okay. were reading, and you know there is a lot of material at the beginning about the life of hobbits and mm-hmm. you know their various meals and whatnot. And he was he asked me. He said, "Is it the Lord of the Rings yet?" <laughs> 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 and so uh, we'll come back to that one. But I would love to have, you know, some uh, some sort of good chapter book that I could read to him that I have some attachment to or can, you know, something I can discover for the first time. So I've been, I'm currently reading uh, like a kid's adaptation of the Ramayana to him. Oh, cool. And after that, maybe, yeah, maybe this, maybe, maybe The Last Unicorn. I can't decide. That sounds like a good problem to have. Oh, yeah. All right. On that note, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, more listener mail. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray 
to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to AstaproAllergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O Allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. 
No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. All right, we're back. Uh, so this next uh, group of emails came in about our episodes on the split brain experiments where the, uh, the there were experiments in like the 1960s on patients who had undergone a corpus callosotomy where their two brain hemispheres were severed in order to cure uh, epilepsy. And uh, that, that involved the uh, severing of the corpus callosum and it produced these very strange effects. So this first message comes from our listener, Chris Nege. Uh, she says, hey, Rob and Joe, uh, I listened to your two-parter on the split brain and was amused with the parts regarding the nuances of language coming from the left brain versus a very rudimentary grasp of it from the right brain. And that is something we discussed. In most cases, most people's uh, left hemisphere is very dominant in language. Mm -hmm. uh, she continues, I have temporal lobe epilepsy, and one of the symptoms of that is aphasia, uh, which is trouble with speech or uh, understanding or generating speech. Whether as part of an absence seizure or after a tonic-clonic seizure, uh, when others are around me after the seizure, including paramedics, I can understand them perfectly but have a very hard time coming up with words to communicate since the epilepsy affects the left side of my brain. Three things I usually can say, though, are um, f and sorry. Yes, I'm Canadian. <laughs> uh, I think it reassures people to hear me swear because they know it's me. Now I'm glad I can explain to these people that these words are probably so ingrained in me that my right brain can handle them while my left brain no pork too good. <laughs> Those were very fascinating episodes. I look forward to hearing more podcasts uh, about the other topics touched on in these ones. All the best, Chris Nesh. Well, thanks so much for sharing your experience. Uh, yeah, th this, uh, this seems to line up with a lot of what we were reading that like in some cases – it seems to vary from person to person. But in some cases, the right brain can understand much more language than it can generate. Like it can sometimes respond to speech but not really create much speech. It looks like you got three words here and I wish you great power in using them. All right, here's another one from Shannon. Shannon writes in and says, Dear Robert and Joe, thanks for the fascinating two-parter on split brains. I've been interested in the topic ever since my sixth grade science fair, where I attempted to determine if left-handed people are more typically right-brained, creative, visual, intuitive, etc., and vice versa. Only later did I learn the left brain versus right brain people concept is largely a myth, which explains why I found little to no correlation. On the question you but raised— hey, I want to say a null result is a good result. It's yeah. worthwhile to do that. Yeah, it's, it's still a good science experiment. On the question you raised of how it's possible that corpus callosotomy patients display such little behavioral change after the surgery, specifically when it comes to moral reasoning and theory of mind, I have two thoughts. You brought up how odd it is that these patients apparently do not noticeably change in everyday moral decision-making, uh, where they uh, are presumably using a system one reasoning. This made me wonder if perhaps the area— in the right uh, parietal lobe has been linked to this type of moral reasoning is in fact part of a system two mechanism. And maybe there is a separate system one process that is harder to replicate in a lab. In other words, 
when uh, callosotomy patients are making quick everyday judgments, maybe they are using a different quicker neurological process that is not affected by splitting the brain and it is only when they are made to sit down and rationalize slowly through choices in an experimental hypothetical uh, that this right brain process occurs or fails to. Hmm. On the other hand, I also like the idea of various compensation mechanisms that work in real-world situations but not in the lab. One of these might be uh, experiential memory. As you touched on while discussing the bandersnatch, we do make theory of mind-related moral judgments every day, but perhaps not too many of them are novel situations. For example, maybe you have a friend who sometimes makes inappropriate jokes, but you know not to take him seriously because you understand he doesn't mean to be insulting. Then one day your corpus callosum gets cut. The next time he makes an inappropriate comment, you might not be able to imagine his intentions in the same way, but you can still remember dismissing him as harmless in the past, and maybe you can even remember imagining his, attention, his intentions in some way. The neural pathway is already there, so maybe you don't have to rely on the same cut-off right brain area to make that judgment. Just some wild speculations of mine. Hope they make some kind of sense. Thank you again for co consistently delivering entertaining and thought-provoking shows, and I'm loving invention, too. Sincerely, Shannon. Oh, thanks, Shannon. Yeah, those are some really interesting ideas. So one of the things when you talk about the idea of system one versus system two, that's sort of along the lines of what uh, the, the authors speculate in their conclusion, though they might have had it inverted from what you say. Um, but yeah, I really like this idea of using memory. Like one reason – even if you can't access certain parts of the brain you would commonly use for moral reasoning, you might just rely on your memory of how you normally interact with certain people. And, and the fact is probably most of the people you're making important moral judgments about throughout the day are probably people you already know unless you're like a judge or in a mm -hmm. jury or something. Now, I love that she also mentioned that uh, she's listening to Invention mm -hmm. um, uh, because we, we have had some exciting episodes of Invention come out come out recently, including one on the wheel. Well, we're a two-parter on the wheel, actually, Yeah, um, where we discuss, of course, just key uh, archaeological cultural evidence for uh, the, the emergence of wheel technology. But also we you know, throw in some discussion of everything from Gary Larson's Farside cartoons <laughs> to uh, you know, Tibetan Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to high-five you across the table, uh, mime-wise, for remembering to plug Invention. If you haven't checked out Invention yet, go check it out. Check it out and subscribe. It'll do you good. It'll do us good. But anyway, let's get to the next uh, message. This is from our listener, Adam. So Adam writes and says, Hi, Robert and Joe. I was just listening to the episode Split Brain Part 2 and wanted to share a thought. No pun intended. I'm not sure if that's a pun, Adam, but okay. Um, your final point was to encourage people to think for themselves rather than base their beliefs on someone else's, such as those of a public figure. I found myself pausing and thinking about this for a minute. On one hand, I agree that being able to think for yourself is very important and that that skill is undertaught. On the other hand, there's been a very clear increase in a distorted faux-critical thinking recently. I think I know where you're going with this, Adam, and I think I agree. This has manifested in Michael Gove's sick of experts vision of the world where people feel their feelings hold the same objective value as an expert's actual knowledge and years of experience. We've seen the downsides of this in public discourse already. Worse, we see it in the failure to solve major problems such as climate change. I'm quite confident this isn't what you meant, but I thought it was worth bringing up since to a degree we must rely on others as a source of information since none of us can be an expert in everything or experience 
experience everything, the outside world acts almost as a third hemisphere to our brains. Unfortunately, it feeds in both necessary and incorrect information. Even the post hoc rationalizations that you talked about being used to explain what the brain did unconsciously sounds a lot like the political and non-political tribalism we're seeing so much of. Somehow I feel this may tie together as one side of the brain responds to a message that the other side would not but still needs to defend. Anyway, apologies if I ranted too long. I just wanted to comment also and say thank you for the work you do. I started listening to podcasts to keep me occupied during my daily train commute, but now have so many that I'm rarely not listening to something. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a lot of fun and a good bit different than most of my economics, politics, news, and science shows. Keep up the great work. Best, Adam. Oh, thanks. Yeah, thanks, Adam. And Adam, I think you make a really excellent point. Uh, part of what I – what I think I was trying to say in this episode has been a while now, but I remember talking about the idea that, you know, the the left brain, if Michael Gazzaniga's left brain interpreter theory is correct, it just sort of like immediately incorporates the deliverances of the right hemisphere into the idea of self and says, this is just me thinking. Mm -hmm. And that is kind of normal because like that's your brain, right? But the idea was that we were discussing Peter Watts and uh, and his idea that, well, if you can like if you could insert thoughts into the brain, like uh, via a, a direct brain-to-computer interface or brain-to-brain -brain interface, what would prevent the brain from taking those inserted thoughts just as if they were coming from the right hemisphere and saying like, okay, this is just me thinking. This is actually just me, like not even detecting that the thoughts are alien. But then I think that this other thing came up because, Robert, you pointed out that we often do this with, with external actors anyway. I mean, uh, the idea is that often to find out what we think about an issue, we just go and consult somebody who we listen to and whatever their view is, that just gets incorporated directly as self. Yeah, that's just what I think now. And I guess that's what I was trying to discourage, the, the direct and automatic incorporation of the views of others as your own view. Instead, you should consider, do I have a good reason to listen? Listen to this person's opinion on this subject. Yeah, I, now I don't know a lot about the uh, this Michael Gove's uh, sick, sick of experts vision that uh, that is mentioned uh, in this listener mail, but I, I do wonder sometimes that you do encounter people who you know they do have that idea. Like I, you know, I this is my gut feeling on this particular topic, mm -hmm. and you know, granted, they're probably influenced by voices here and there, you know, as we all are. Yeah, uh, but. But still, they they have this idea that nope, I'm I'm making up my own mind on this, and and my opinion on this has 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 value and is you know screw it the correct vision of reality. Yeah, and I, I wonder if sometimes this is an attractive way of thinking about say scientific concepts, uh, because we erroneously turn to examples in artistic creation. Or music, or uh, you know, you name it, outsider art, mm -hmm. where we say, well, you know, the, the story of like the self-taught individual who, who never went to to art school, uh, you know, the, can't read sheet music, but can play, you know, you know, but creates all these beautiful songs. Mm -hmm. And so, in, in some of these models, and you can sort of you know, certainly you can get into a big argument uh, within any artistic medium about uh, uh, you know the, the uh, uh, you know outsider artist versus uh, you know the, the the highly trained artists and uh, traditions, et cetera. But uh, there's certainly not it's, – it's apples and oranges, I think, when you're comparing um, the artist to the scientist. 
Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, it, arts are a field in which we highly prize intuition and sort of inherent skillfulness over over training a lot of times. And also, you know, the purpose of art is to create a response in the audience. And if right. it creates that response, then in a way it's successful. There, there's not like – I mean, people could have arguments about this, but I don't think that there's a way to be right or wrong in art or music or whatever. Well, right. well the, the artist is, you know, whatever the medium, they're 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 trying to create a shape, yeah, based on something inside themselves that may be inside another person as well. Mm-hmm. They're creating something, you know, based on an intimate knowledge, inner knowledge. But say something like someone like a like a a, a, a climate scientist. Yeah, they are, or or um, um, you know, various other scientific fields. You're you're trying to take something that we do not have innate knowledge of, you know, right. a complex system that is beyond the human experience. There is a shape out there. It's like buried in the sand and you're trying to uncover it and get a good model of what it looks like. Mm-hmm. And you can't use that that intuition that works so so well in many cases on the inner exploration. You can't use that on the outer exploration. Yes. I think that's a really good way of thinking about it. And I really appreciate Adam getting in touch here because this is, I think, one of the big tensions of modern intellectual life is the tension between thinking for yourself and listening to people who know what they're talking about. And these two things, like, they're both very important and an important part of, like, practicing good critical thinking and being a well-informed person who's more likely to come to the, you know, to know what's true about things is finding the correct balance of when to exercise these two thoughts. I, I mean, I think one thing is it's it's good to think for yourself, but as Adam points out, you don't have time to think for yourself on every issue. It's impossible. Right. So you have to know what a real expert looks Looks like and sounds like versus somebody who's just claiming to be an expert and be able to like know when to listen to them on subjects that you don't have the time to become fully educated on yourself. Yeah, there's so many topics I do not want to be an expert in. Right. I don't want to be an expert in uh, uh, you know auto mechanics. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that's somebody else's domain, and I'll, I'll gladly refer to their expertise. All right, I think Carney has one more dripping uh, bit of, uh, of brain listener mail for us here. This one comes also from an Adam, but a totally different Adam. Hello, Robert and Joe. I'm a longtime listener of the show from North Carolina, but I've never felt like I had something worth writing in about until now. I have a condition known as confusional arousal, also called sleep drunkenness. While I have not been formally diagnosed, I have had several textbook episodes. Uh, This is just an expression as I don't believe there is much literature on the condition. After doing a little research, I have found that it is not even mentioned in the DSM-5, but there are several articles about it online. My experiences with this condition have all been told to me by others, as I have virtually no memory of the events, but several people, including my mother and former girlfriend, have shared similar reports. It goes something like this. I fall asleep while trying to stay awake. Someone wakes me up. I am seemingly alert, but extremely confused, unable to recognize people or where I am, and sometimes mumbling or talking nonsensically. Then I go back to sleep and wake up uh, with no memory of the event, although sometimes I have uh, sort of a feeling that something happened. One particular episode was quite frightening. I was watching TV with my then-girlfriend and fell asleep on her couch. The next thing I remember, she was driving, and we were nearly to my house, about a 15-minute drive from hers. She was very upset, and I eventually got her to tell me that I had had an episode, and along the way, I said, I hate you. I remember saying something like, that wasn't me in response, but I believe... Still, that because I have no memory of it and my conscious self would never have thought, much less said something like that. Still, it raised the question to her and myself of whether part of my unconscious mind felt that way. 
Even before I listened to your split brain episode, I had the intuition that this episode was due to parts of my brain, perhaps uh, one whole hemisphere, remaining asleep while the rest was awake. I recognize that this assumption could be false, as this phenomenon is barely recognized in psychology, much less explained. But I don't know how else this could be explained. Any insight you could give would be appreciated, and I believe this would fit in well with any future Parasomnia episodes you would record. Anyway, thank you for this seemingly endless, insightful, and fascinating content. You have me. Uh, uh, you have brought me hours of entertainment and blown my mind many times. I especially enjoy your episodes related to space travel and science fiction, but all of them are great. Best regards, Adam. Well, thanks, Adam. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the realm of sleep is one of the easiest places people can go to to understand what it's like to not know your own brain, mm -hmm. you know, because there everybody's had the experience, I bet, of doing something in a dream that you would you would think you would never do in normal life and you would never want to do. You'd feel horrible about, right? And then you wake up and you think, oh, my God, you know, I just had a dream where I, I slapped my grandmother or something that, that would just be horrible. Um, why did I do that? Is that part of what my brain really wants to do? You're, you're confronted with the idea that you have – Things going on in your brain that are not part of your volition, you know, not not part of your normal will or your normal understanding of yourself. That you know, I can't say that I ever really have dreams where I do things that I wouldn't do in reality. Really? Know? Yeah, like not. No, I certainly have dreams where the protagonist of the dream is not me. You know, where it's a more of a narrative dream. It's a, a dream about somebody else or some other people. But dreams in which I am myself. I am often like re really inconveniently tied to my own, um, uh, uh, you know, moral uh, behavior. Uh, like they would be, it'd be a lot more fun if, in some of these cases if I was just essentially lucid dreaming and could, you know, play the bad guy. Uh, in Internal the, Grand Theft Autoing. Yeah, essentially. <laughs> but it never goes that way. It's more like it, it's just me f <laughs> being like, oh, no, I really can't do that. I shouldn't do that. Nope. I'm going to say no to that as well. And then later I wake up and realize, well, that was a dream. Why did I say, say no? I should have just, I should have just, you know, flown through the ceiling and been God of my own universe. So, you know, I really need to uh, make this lucid dreaming thing happen at some point. No, it sounds like you're saving yourself a lot of guilt. I mean, <laughs> I, I think it is normal for people to have dreams where they, they do things that they don't feel good about when they wake up, even though they didn't actually do them. You can just be worried that, like, why did my brain produce that? Well, see, I, I don't know. I would, I don't think I've ever had that experience. I almost would, would, would like to try something different, differently, because, uh, yeah, I just had, I just have way too many dreams, especially now. Like, like nothing even interesting happens in the dream. It's just, uh, in in large part because I, I end up playing by the rules so much in them. You know, I bet somewhere out there there's somebody who's got a book that's like the five-step process for becoming bad in dreams. Yeah. I mean, certainly there are there processes to help you with lucid dreaming, and I've, I've, I've known people who've had you know, some success with it. Mm -hmm. But it's just it's a lot of work, and, uh, and there's so many other things I'm trying to do uh, as, uh, as, as I'm you know, ramping up to bedtime. Well, maybe your brain's just saving all your creativity for your waking hours. That would be a thing to be thankful for. Yeah, maybe that's what's happening. That's the positive spin. All right, well, on that note, we're going to take one more break. And when we come back, a little more listener mail. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. 
No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 
All right, we're back. So this next message comes from our listener, Emmett, and it's on the subject of Oumuamua. And Emmett writes, Hi again. In the recent listener mail episode, you mentioned that Oumuamua gained momentum by traveling past our sun. This is not likely to be the case in the sense I think you meant. As a traveling object enters a gravity well, it does gain momentum, but it would then lose all that momentum as it leaves the well. I think that's correct. Emmett says, there are two maneuvers that you can gain momentum from a gravity well. The one we usually hear about is a slingshot maneuver, which can't be used by objects from our solar system when it comes to the sun because the sun's momentum is zero from our reference frame. Oumuamua is not from our solar system, true, but its momentum is similar to the sun's, so I'm not sure it could effectively steal momentum from the sun this way. Even if it could, it would depend on what side of the sun it passed by on. If it passed in front of the sun's momentum, it would actually lose speed. There's another way for an object to get a speed boost from the sun's gravity well, through the Oberth effect. Drive systems in spacecraft are more efficient at higher speeds, up to a point, and you can use the fall into the sun's gravity well to build up some velocity and then activate your drive. This will give your drive a small but very real efficiency boost. The last way that applies to Oumuamua is that near the sun, radiation pressure is going to be higher, so the boost Oumuamua felt was probably just because it was getting blasted with more intense solar wind and radiation. Um, and yeah, I, I think Emmett's correct about that. And the, what we were talking about in the episode was probably that the radiation pressure led to the net gain in momentum mm -hmm. that Oumuamua experienced. But I think Emmett's responding to somebody asking us um, if Oumuamua would gain speed by traveling near the sun. And I, I think we said it would, which of course it would. But Emmett is entirely correct that as it leaves, it also loses that speed as well. So it would be at the, the fastest point near its perihelion when it's closest to the sun in that parabola. So you're saying it might be aliens. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, what does might mean? I don't know. You know How small of a chance does that encompass? I'm still clinging to the, the out-of-control alien derelict uh, ship uh, possibility. Okay. Yeah. I put a higher chance on it being aliens than I do on it being humans from the future. <laughs> All right. Uh, I, I want to read a quick listener mail here that came to us. Uh, this is related to a, an older episode, one that I, I did with Christian, uh, about Chinese ghost marriage. Oh, cool. Yeah, this one comes to us from Nicole. She says, hey, guys, I was just listening to your episode on Chinese ghost marriage, and I know I'm late to the party, but I have a story for you. A couple of years ago, my dad attended his father's funeral in northeast China. A man dressed in white, which is typically worn by family members of the deceased, approached my dad and greeted him as a brother. Neither my dad nor any of his sisters had met this man before. As it turns out, my grandfather had an older sister who passed away before she was married. Around the same time, a boy from the same village died, also unmarried. The two were married posthumously. The boy's family then went the extra mile and adopted a son on behalf of their dead son and, and daughter-in-law without the knowledge of my family. That son was my dad's cousin. Uh, he had come to pay his respects to his uncle. Just thought you might like an example of how this seemingly archaic rite exists in living memory. Keep up the good work. Nicole from Australia. Well, thank you, Nicole. That was a, a wonderful tidbit. Yeah, th this this was an older episode uh, uh, that uh, that that looked at Chinese ghost marriage and uh, and you know tried to get to the heart of like you know what why it exists uh, and existed as as a practice and what it says about uh, um, these you know these traditional Chinese models of uh, of family and ideas about. Uh, uh, you know what, what what happens when we die and how we deal with the the, the passing of individuals who have uh, you know 
haven't to quite fit into the, the ideal family form. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was great to yeah, great to hear from somebody that has you know personal family experience of uh, of this. Yeah, totally. Thank you for getting in touch, Nicole. All right, this next one, uh, we we got at least a couple of messages in response to the episode Robert and I did back in October about uh, curses. It was an episode called Mm -hmm. The Curse. And I was kind of surprised given the normal uh, approach of the show, but we heard from a couple of listeners who were unhappy with the episode because they thought we were too dismissive or closed-minded about the idea that magic spells literally work. Um, and uh, and of course we did discuss plenty of the potential psychological power and meaning of of spell work and and witchcraft and all that. But uh, I, they seem to think we were too dismissive of spells literally having an effect. Well, well, let's let's hear what she had to say. Okay, uh, so this is from Michelle. I found your episode on curses very interesting, and I have a link to information about book curses that you may find interesting as well. However, in the podcast, you mentioned more than once that curses were invoked by common folk and that they had no scientific understanding. And you even stated with certainty that magic isn't real. This is surprising because you normally keep such open minds. I think you make these statements based on the belief that magic is supernatural, but what if magic is as naturally possible as gravity or quantum physics? I'm no expert on many scientific things, but I accept them to be true without clear evidence presented to my eyes. I'd encourage you to do some reading on magic and modern paganism. You may find it interesting. The Complete Idiot's Guide to Wicca and Witchcraft is a good place to start. It was highly recommended to me by the proprietor of a local witchcraft store, and I did find it to be informative as promised. Blessed be, Michelle. Well, thanks for getting in touch, Michelle. And um, I... While I'm going to disagree with you partially, I I take your point seriously. Um, the first thought I have is that as we talked about in the episode, I think it's really important to distinguish between like literal magical causation, like the power of spells to levitate objects or strike mm-hmm. a cloak thief dead at a distance um, and like the personal psychological power of sacred rites like spells. Yeah, I mean, I've had people cast spells, uh, you know, pagan spells, say, uh, in my house as a protective, uh, you know, uh, sort of housewarming kind of uh, uh, an effect. I've had uh, spells cast on me that have kind of like a healing objective. And certainly neither of these am I going to expect, you know, them to, you know, 100 percent work to these these two uh, for the the, the home protection spell to be like a security system or the (laughs) or the the healing spell to be as good as, uh, uh, you know, going to see a doctor about my knee or, you know, something to that effect. Uh, But they they certainly have social value. They certainly have uh, there is a value in somebody saying, I care about you or your circumstance and here is here is a ritual that proves it out. I mean, that's that's just how I look at it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I feel very much the same way about religious rites and rituals that you don't have to believe that there's literal supernatural power at work in order to see them as valuable because they are psychological dramas. They have meaning and significance between people. They, mm-hmm. they establish feelings and relationships. Like when I listen to the song Eye of the Tiger, um, <laughs> I know that it, it doesn't actually have a magical effect on me, but it but it certainly gets me pumped up. It right. makes me feel like uh, like I'm a little bit uh, uh, invincible. Yeah, yeah. In in many ways, I think magic and spells and rites and all that can be a lot like music. It's not like music is invoking the you know the literal might of some god that exists somewhere, but it does something to the people who listen to it and the people who play it. Yeah, and it can be it can be a, 
it can be a driving force in your life. It can be a reason to live. Uh, same with with uh, with magic, with religion, with uh, various supernatural ideas. If we choose to layer them over the objective reality that we deal with. Mm-hmm. Now, but uh, more directly to Michelle's point, so when it does come to like the literal magical causation she's talking about, I mean, she she is correct that uh, I don't like believe in it and we don't tend to consider it on the show as like a serious possibility in explaining why things happened. And I don't think – essentially my point is I don't think that it is close-minded to not attribute things to literal magical causation because – I think being open-minded means being open to evidence. Mm-hmm. And if there's good evidence that there's literal magical causation in the world, I think, of course, we would be open to it. I think we demonstrate that all the time. But I'd just say personally, since, like, I'm really interested in this sort of thing and I read about this sort of thing a lot and I've never come across anything that seems like good evidence of literal magic, I couldn't honestly claim on the show to think that maybe magic is actually a good explanation for something. So I, I would feel disingenuous if I I was on here saying, like, maybe magical curses are real. I just don't think that's likely to be true, and I wouldn't feel honest if I was saying that. But ultimately, our show, it's not about, it's not about say, dismissing the idea of curses is about like saying, well, but but look, but look at what uh, look at all these these rituals and all these beliefs that that have existed that do involve curses. Like, why do we have curses? Yes, it's finding what's important and powerful about curses, even if there is no literal magic. Yeah, like none of these things are meaningless. Like anytime we talk about. Uh, you know, religious concept, mythological concept. Like these are not just meaningless doodles in the the corners of uh, of uh, the Earth's uh, scientific narrative. Like these are these are important things that say important things about us, about our world, and how we interact with it. And uh, and yeah, I. I, I I feel like that we always try and keep that part of the mission here on Stuff to Blow Your Mind. I totally agree. Finding what's interesting and meaningful uh, about things, no matter what those things are. I mean, like, uh, and I would also say that I feel like this way of looking at the world goes way beyond just like magic and spell work, paganism and witchcraft. For example, I know of Christians who pray for their loved ones without believing the prayer will literally bring supernatural benefits to the people they pray for. Instead, it's more like performing an inner drama. It like reinforces values of selflessness and love and goodwill. It's sort of a self-conditioning. Yeah, I mean, I, I uh, we employ prayer in my house. It's uh, it, you know, if, if nothing else, it is a reason to stop and think about someone other than yourself. Yeah. you know, and uh, and that alone, I think, has value in in one's life. Uh, again, this is just my take on the topic. Totally, man. So, I mean, it, I guess my final thought here is that even when it comes to non-practitioners, uh, a person doesn't have to believe in literal magical causation to see what's fascinating and wonderful uh, about things like paganism and witchcraft and religious rituals in general. It, it is fascinating phenomena. It's something I want to understand and learn more about. And if we didn't think these were worthy subjects, we wouldn't talk about them so much on the show. Now, on that note, I am glad that we still have not uttered the V word or the L word <laughs> and thus enraged our, uh, our, our, our male bot here. That would be like invoking the wrath of an angry god. However, we do have one last bit of listener mail here that does relate to certain red little packages uh, showing up <laughs> on your doorstep uh, during a certain parts of the year. Uh, we're gonna, uh, we have a little bit uh, regarding Christmas Island crabs. Oh, boy. This t- comes to us from Dan. 
Dan says, I recently finished listening to the second part of your Christmas Island Crab episode and also on your recommendation watched Roger Corman's Attack of the Crab Monsters. Yeah, I'm spreading the love. (laughs) After watching the movie, I had an idea for a possible remake that is also partially based on your episode. The basic plot would stay the same. A group of scientists and soldiers land on a remote island to to discover what happened to the previous group of scientists and encounter a giant super intelligent crab monster bent on world domination. But here's where the remake would differ from the 1957 original. It would be set during Christmas (laughs) on Christmas Island and involve enormous super intelligent coconut crabs who have used their psychic powers to turn the local human population into slave labor who worship the giant decapods as gods, continuously clear roads and build homes for them before ending up as a food source when their usefulness runs out. Now, if you had a giant, like, god-sized coconut crab, can you imagine the amount of limpid oil? (laughs) What's more frightening, a uh, god-sized crab or a crab-sized god? (laughs) I'm not sure. Uh, Okay, uh, Dan continues. And in case you're wondering, yes, it would involve radiation. Some (laughs) ideas are just too good to change. It has to be atomic radiation. It's up to a ragtag group of scientists and soldiers led by Brian Cox and Peter Stormare to put an end to the crab's tyranny and liberate the human slaves. Maybe we could use Robert's wonderful Christmas song during the end credits. Yes. Coming soon to a theater near you. Keep up the great work. I look forward to more mind-blowing episodes in the new year. Somebody get Dan in touch with 20th Century Fox or Paramount. I don't know. I don't know what studios do what. Whoever would make this movie, get them going. <laughs> yeah, I, I think we're overdue for a giant crab movie. Somebody's going to do it. It's going to come back. There's going to be another giant crab movie. Might as well be this one. This one sounds pretty fun. And we have one more about Christmas Island. This comes from Chris. Chris writes, Hi, Robert and Joe. I couldn't believe my ears when my wife, Michelle, told me that you guys did not one but two pods about Christmas Island, a place I called home for 10 years between 1996 and 2006. Wow. We, we were like, hey, have you lived on Christmas Island? If so, write in. We heard from multiple people who had been to Christmas Island. I couldn't believe this. Yeah, it was, it was multiple people. Uh, but I knew there would, there would be at least one person out there. I knew. I, I knew. So it's, I guess it's not too surprising. But Chris and Michelle actually lived there. Yeah. They lived on Christmas Island. So uh, Chris continues, we thoroughly enjoyed both episodes. And so I thought I'd dig up a few old family photos from my childhood featuring days spent amongst the red crabs. Every year we'd look forward to the onset of the rainy season, which, as you described so wonderfully, initiated the annual crab migration. We'd spend hours running around the quiet streets studying the crabs and watching the hordes go by. Thanks for the great podcast and spreading the word about my beautiful former home. Hope you like the photos. And Chris attached some photos that are so good. One is uh, children playing in the street surrounded by crabs. Mm Mm-hmm. Another one is a cat sitting on like a – looks like a front lawn walkway just lying there in that wonderful, perfect, lazy cat repose surrounded by crabs on all sides. The cat does not seem worried. Yeah, this looks like a, a cat that was maybe in really into – messing with these crabs or checking them out a while ago <laughs> and now it's just like so over it and it's just just napping in the sun but it looks like uh, the cat just is just going to let the crabs crawl right over him <laughs> well you got to nap somewhere that's our new motto all right. Well, we're going to close it off uh, there for today. But certainly we, we had so much more listener mail we didn't have time to get to. Uh, hopefully we'll come back to some of it in the next installment in about a month or so. Yeah. 
But uh, but again, we thank everybody for writing in because we, we, we really try and read it all. We don't have time to respond to it all. We don't have time on the show to feature it all. But we just we do always appreciate hearing uh, from all of our listeners. Yeah, as always, we, we really love all the mail we get. We're sorry we can't read it all on the show. And, and please keep it coming. Thank you so much. All right. So, hey, you, you, you all have listened to the show enough to know the basics here. StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find all the episodes. That's where you'll find links out to social media accounts that we're on, uh, including the discussion module, Stuff to Blow Your Mind's Facebook group, the discussion module. That's the official place if you want to chat with other other listeners. And also uh, Joe and I hang out there a little bit as well. Post uh, you know, you know anything you like related to episodes we've done or episodes you'd like us to do in the future or just – just fun science, et cetera. That's a good place to go. Uh, also, the website has a link out to our Tee Public store, which has a number of cool designs in there. You can get T-shirts, stickers, uh, laptop cases, uh, pillows with our logos for invention or stuff to blow your mind, uh, as well as some cool designs based on past episodes. Pillows. Pillows. That's the best thing. You can get a pillow that says the squirrels are not what they seem. Oh, wow. Uh, with that fabulous bone-gnawing uh, squirrel design that we have. What I want to see is listeners out there buying pillows from our store and then getting their pets to sit on those pillows and getting them covered in pet hair. Send us photos. Well, uh, not of just the pet hair. They're like the pet needs to be on uh, the pillow. Yeah, the, the pet on the throne of the stuff to blow your mind oh, pillow. Yeah, because I, if I want to see just pet hair on a pillow, I, I get that every home, day. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. And as always, if you want to support the show in a way that doesn't cost you a dime, the absolute best thing you can do is subscribe to Invention and Stuff to Blow Your Mind and to rate and review those shows wherever you have the power to do so, wherever you get this podcast. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us directly to let us know uh, feedback on this episode or any other, do suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, let us know where you listen from, how you found out about the show, all that kind of stuff, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. 
Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com.